In the quiet bedroom of her Noida, India family apartments, Nupur Tawa, a mother of one, awaits the sounds of the doorbell ringing. She begrudgingly arose from the comfort of her warm bed, leaving her husband snoring softly, to go see who had been persistently ringing the bell at six o'clock in the morning. Little did Nupur know, when she woke up that morning on the 16th of May 2008, her life as she knew it would be thrown into the dark pits of hell. She walked to the front door of the family home, enveloped by the calm before the storm. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before, especially on my channel, and I tell you, I know it's not good reason. Magellan TV is my absolute go-to for all of my documentary needs. With a wide range of documentaries from space, nature, to true crime, and with 4K at no extra cost, it's the perfect place to wind down after a long day, while still learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week, so if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, worry no more. I've just watched Body Snatches of New York, which is a documentary that explores the world of tissue collection. The world of tissue collection may seem questionable, but it is entirely legal. However, when a group of men starts to pay off funeral homes and fail to get consent to rummage through bodies, it becomes clear that their questionable morals are law-breaking. Be sure to use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments to use your one month free trial to go watch Body Snatches of New York. And once you've finished it, dive deep into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As I said before, new documentaries like Body Snatches of New York are added to Magellan TV weekly, so don't sleep on this offer. Grab your one month free trial using the links below. And thanks to Magellan TV for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible. Our case starts in Noida, India. Noida stands for New Okla Industrial Development Authority and is a planned city in the Gautam Buddha Nagar district. A planned city being a city that was thoroughly planned before being built on undeveloped land. Noida is on the outskirts of Delhi and in 2011 had a population of just under 700,000 people. The city of Noida is home to several famous Hindu temples, such as the Honuman Temple in Sector 22 and the Shiv Mandir in Sector 31. Arushi Tawa was born on the 24th of May in 1994 to Rajesh Tawa and Nupur Tawa, who both worked in the dentistry field. Her parents actually worked in a clinic together in Sector 27, and on top of this, her father Rajesh was the head of the dental departments at the Fortis Hospital and altogether they lived in Sector 25 in Noida, which is more commonly known in India as Jaluvayu Vihar. The family lived in an apartment that was approximately 1,300 square feet. It had three bedrooms, which included the quarters where a man called Hemraj Banjade slept, separate from the family. You see, Hamraj had actually been employed by the family as a live-in cook and domestic worker, helping out with keeping the house clean and ensuring all of the domestic chores are completed. Hemraj's quarters also had their own entrance, which was separate from the front door that the family used. Rajesh and Nepal slept in the master bedroom, which was directly next to Arushi's room. 
Nepal kept a key for Arushi's bedroom on her bedside table, on the right-hand side of the bed that she shared with Rajesh. You see, the door to Arushi's bedroom had a self-locking mechanism, meaning the only way to get in was with the key. The only other self-locking door in the house was the innermost front door. The Tawa household had three layers of doors in their main entrance. The outermost door was more of a gate, which could be opened by force. To the right of this gate was the entrance used by Hemraj to enter the apartments, and directly onwards was the second door, which had a latch on the outside, and that door would remain unlocked when there were people inside the house. The innermost door, as mentioned before, was the only other door in the house with a self-locking feature. The family entered and left through these doors and gates on a daily basis. Arushi attended the Delhi public school and was described by her friends as charming and good at academics. The family seemed to live comfortably, and as we know, this allowed them to hire Hemraj to help around the house. Hemraj's real name was Yam Prasad Banjade, and he was born in a village called Darapani in Nepal. Darapani is a small village housing approximately 50 families in a valley protected by the mountains. Hemraj Banjad's house back in Nepal had been a traditional mud house with a dip in the middle of the floor where fires would be lit on the coldest days and nights. Living in this house were Kumkala, their son, Prajwal, and Hemraj's mother, Krishna Kala. Hemraj was her only child, and tragically, Krishna's husband had died 40 years before the events of this case, in what was described as a freak accident. Hemraj's wife, Kumkala, spoke about how he would send 3,000 rupees every month of his 5,000 rupee salary from the Tawa family. 5,000 rupees today is approximately 66 US dollars, and of that payment, he would send 39 dollars. Hemraj was keeping his family afloat through sending this monthly payment back to Nepal. Not much is mentioned about Hemraj's background, other than the fact that he had worked in Malaysia for a period of time, but didn't really enjoy it, and told his family that he wouldn't ever go back there. Working for the Talwas, Hemraj often complained of Rajesh having a short temper and being overly strict. Hemraj Hemraj had a son-in-law working in the same profession as himself, a domestic living cook and house help. And his name was Jivan, and he worked for a family by the name of Singh living in Noida. On the 15th of May 2008, Nepal Talwa had been working at the family clinic from the hours of 9am to 1pm. After finishing work, she picked up Arushi at about 1.30pm, and together they drove back to their home. Nupur's sister-in-law, Vandana Talwa, had joined Nupur and Arushi for lunch that afternoon at the family home before both women left the home, leaving Arushi alone. Rajesh had been teaching at the ITS Dental College at the time and hadn't finished his teachings there until about 3.30pm. He then went on to treat patients at his clinic until about 8.30pm that evening. At approximately 9pm, Rajesh returned home and was driven by his chauffeur, Umesh Sharma. Rajesh was dropped off by his chauffeur Umesh at the front entrance to the building while Umesh went to park the car. Umesh then dropped off the car keys to Hemraj at approximately 9.40pm. Umesh claims to have seen Arushi and Nupur at the dining table, and Rajesh coming out of his bedroom, having changed out of his work clothing. Unbeknownst to Umesh, it's believed that he would be the last person outside of immediate household members to see Arushi and Hemraj alive. 
According to Rajesh and Nupur Tawa, at around 10pm, they had gifted Arushi with a digital camera as a early birthday present. You see, her birthday had been very close, falling on the 24th of May, but Nupur had decided and managed to convince Rajesh to give her the camera the day that it had arrived in the mail. Arushi, in her excitement, clicked several photos of her and her parents. The last photograph taken on this digital camera contained metadata that revealed it to have been taken at 10.10pm. 10 .10 at 11pm, Rajesh asked Nupur to switch on the internet router, which was located in Arushi's room. And when Nupur entered Arushi's bedroom, Nupur discovered Arushi reading a book by Shitton Bagu called The Three Mistakes of My Life. Shaitan Bagur is an Indian author and columnist who boasts a spot in the Times list of top 100 most influential people in 2010. Shortly after Nepal switched on the internet, Rajesh received a call from the United States on the landline. He then browsed the stock market, looked at some dentistry websites, and sent one email. The last time Rajesh used the internet was logged by their router, and it recorded the time to have been 11.41pm. At around 12am, a school friend of Arushi called Anmol tried to call her on her mobile phone, though Anmol didn't receive a response from Arushi. When Arushi didn't pick up, Anmol sent her a text message, but this text would never actually be received by Arushi's phone. The internet router recorded the last usage for anyone within the house to have been at 12.08am. Now, not too much is known about the activities of Hemraj after he had his dinner at 11.30pm. Though we do know that in the time leading up to this day, he had told some of his friends that he had feared for his life. A housemaid that was recently hired by the Tawa family had been scheduled to arrive every day at the family home at 6am. This housemaid was called Bharati Mandal, and every morning at 6am she would ring the doorbell and Hemraj would open the door for her. She had only been employed by the family for six days, but this routine at 6am with Hemraj had been like clockwork. And so Bharati rang the doorbell at 6am on the 16th of May, as she had done for every morning for six days, but nobody answered. So she decided to ring the doorbell a second time, and then a third time, before eventually Nupur rose out of her bed to let her in. Nupur had realised that the middle door had been latched from the outside, and speaking through the middle door to Bharati had deduced that Hemraj had left early to fetch groceries. Nupur asked Bharati to wait outside until Hemraj returned, but understandably, she didn't want to wait outside, and so she asked Nupur to throw the keys so that she could let herself in. Nupur threw the keys to Bharati from the balcony and tried to call Hemraj as Bharati had been letting herself into the house. Though the phone didn't ring at all, and cut off almost immediately when Nupur had tried to call Hemraj. She tried once more, only for it to cut off a second time. By this time, Rajesh had climbed out of bed to see why his wife was up so early and to see what all the fuss was about. Though as Rajesh walks from their bedroom to the front door of the family home, he noticed an almost empty bottle of scotch whiskey on the table. The whiskey had come from a concealed bar that the couple kept in the living area of the house, and Rajesh knew that he certainly hadn't drunk the scotch, so who had? Alarmed, Rajesh asked Nepal if she had left the bottle there or if she knew who did. Nepal had no idea, but fearing their daughter might have some involvement in the mystery, the couple ran to Arushi's room to check on her. The door, which could only be unlocked from the outside or opened from the inside, had been unlocked. This was strange because, as mentioned before, Arushi's bedroom door had a self-locking mechanism set up to lock whenever the door had been closed behind anyone. 
Nippur and Rajesh rushed into the room and found Arushi lying dead on her bed. Rajesh, understandably distraught, started screaming, but Nippur didn't scream at all or cry. Nippur stated that upon finding her daughter's dead body, she'd gone into a state of shock. Bharati had finally entered the apartment using the keys, only to see Nippur and Rajesh crying outside of Arushi's room. Nippur asked Bharati to look inside Arushi's room, and she obliged and stood in the doorway of the room and looked over at the bed as Nippur pulled back a final blanket that had been covering the body of Arushi. It was then that Bharati noticed that Arushi's throat had been slit. Immediately, Rajesh and Nippur blamed Arushi's death on Hemraj in front of Bharati. Bharati stepped out of the room to take a moment before announcing she would let the neighbours know what had happened. After she'd done this, she asked the Tawas if they wanted her to do her daily household chores, to which they responded with no. So Bharati then left the apartment to go and do the work for her other clients in other houses for the rest of the day. Rajesh and Nepal Talwa called their family and friends and told them about what had happened, and subsequently they all began to gather in the family home. And by 8am, not only did their family, friends and neighbours know, but the media had also gathered outside of the apartment building as a murder in an area as affluent as theirs was extremely shocking to the press. By the time the police had arrived at the apartment, it was packed with just over 20 people who had come to show their support for the Tawa family. The only vacant room in the house was the crime scene, which didn't matter because it had already been disturbed by so many onlookers. In all of this time, Hemraj had still not returned to the home, which naturally led the police to suspect him first. Police offered a sum of 20,000 rupees, which is approximately 264 US dollars, for any tips that would help the police find Hemraj. Rajesh had offered the police 25,000 rupees in exchange for them to stop wasting their time in Arushi's bedroom and to go to Hemraj's home village in Nepal. 25,000 rupees is equivalent to 330 US dollars. The first theory that the police came up with placed Hemraj as the prime suspect. They speculated that Hemraj had consumed a large quantity of whiskey, which he had then left on the table in the living room. They further hypothesized that he'd then gone into Arushi's bedroom in order to sexually assault her, and when she resisted, he'd slit her throat with a kukri, which is a Nepali knife. The kukri is a type of machete which originated in Nepal. Its earliest use is recorded to be around the 7th century. It's most famously associated with the Gurkhas of Nepal, soldiers from South Asia and Northeast India. The kukri was used as a melee weapon, as well as a basic survival knife for the Gurkhas. A traditional custom of the kukri is the drawing of blood using a blade. It is thought that every kukri blade must draw blood at least once, recognising its power as a fighting weapon. Arushi's body was taken from the home at 8.30am by Uttar Pradesh police constables, accompanied by Rajesh's brother Dinesh, his chauffeur Umesh, and a childhood friend by the name of AJ Chadha, who had arrived at the family home upon hearing the news. They then conducted an autopsy on Arushi and returned her body to the home on ice slabs at around 1pm so that the Tawas could cremate her. By the way, this all happened on the same day, in the same morning. Her body was subsequently taken to the Antamaniwa's crematorium at around 4pm and then cremated. The media pointed out that the Tawas were in a hurry to cremate their daughter's body, to which they had responded by saying that she was decomposing fast, and the elders had been pushing for the ceremony to be done as soon as possible. The police had also confirmed that after the autopsy, they didn't need her body for any further examinations. 
However, the police also went on to say that the Tawa's staff were hasty to clean the home, but of course the family had yet another defence. The family compounder, which is a special kind of pharmacist which put together custom medication formulas to meet unique needs, had been told by the police that he was allowed to clean the house after being given permission by several police officers and a female constable. A section of Arushi's mattress had been sent to forensics alongside her bedding and the clothing that she'd been wearing when she died. The compounder, called Vikas Sethi, admitted to police that he and three others had tried to dispose of the mattress on the terrace, but had found the terrace door to be locked. They then got told by an old lady passing by to put the mattress on the neighbouring terrace instead. Umesh asked the Tawa's neighbour for the key to the terrace, which they had provided, allowing the mattress to be thrown out. Earlier in the day, they'd also asked to throw out the slabs of ice that Arushi's body had returned home on. Late in the morning of May 16th, after the discovery of Arushi, several visitors reported bloodstains on the terrace door handle of the Tawa home. Bloodstains were further reported to be on the stairs leading up to the terrace, however it must be noted that earlier witnesses could not recall seeing them. Authorities deduced that the bloodstains must have been left by the group that had carried the mattress up to the terrace after everybody had left. A former colleague of Rajesh's, Rahit Kocha, claims that the bloodstains had been reported to a police constable called Aklish Kumar. Kumar originally dismissed the bloodstains as rust and looked no further into it. And further, he dismissed bloodstains on the stairs. Varshni, another one of Rajesh's old colleagues, claims that the police told him that the killer had tried to leave through the terrace, but found the door to have been locked and so made their way back down the stairs. The police were eventually convinced to do a sweep of the terrace belonging to the Tawas. They tried to check the terrace on the 16th, but neither Najish or Nupur could find the key to the terrace. According to Kokchar, when the police asked Rajesh for the key to the terrace, he went inside the apartment and didn't come back for a considerable amount of time. Rajesh said he doesn't remember being asked for the key, but he didn't stop the investigators from entering or searching any part of his home. The authorities were unable to get through the terrace door as it had been locked and the key was missing, and so had left and decided to come back the next day. On the 17th of May, a day after Arushi's body had been found dead in her room, Rajesh and Nupur left their home to spread their daughter's ashes in the Ganges River as part of a Hindu custom. People who were just hearing the news continued to arrive at the Tawa home to pay their respects and give condolences to the family. The visitors were being managed and supervised by Rajesh's brother Dinesh. Among the visitors was a retired police officer called Gotham. Now, Gotham had been sent by a chairman at the Eye Care Eye Hospital. Denise showed Guatem the bloodstains leading up to the terrace door and on the door handle, and Denise requested that Guatem unlock the door himself, so Guatem decided to call a superintendent by the name of Mahish Mishra. Guatem told Mishra that the terrace key had been missing and the lock would have to be broken in order for them to get onto the terrace, and Mishra gave his words that he would visit the crime scene personally, but before then he sent another officer to the Tawa apartment. The terrace key, though, still cannot be found, so this other police officer was forced to break open the lock to the terrace. As the group of men entered the terrace, though, the first thing they saw was a trail of bloody jag marks. At the end of the trail was a body that had been left to bask in the harsh Indian heat for over 24 hours. The body that the police officers described as being in, quote, advanced stages of putrefaction, was laying in a pool of blood. Nobody, though, could identify the body as Hemraj. Dinesh called back Rajesh and Nupur from their journey to Hardiwar, where they were going to dispose of their daughter's ashes. 
On their arrival at the home, Nippur didn't leave the car and stayed in the vehicle with Arushi's ashes. Rajesh went up to the terrace to see if he could identify the body, but he could not. Later on, a friend of Hemraj did positively identify the body um, and confirmed that the body was his. The police had found Hemraj Banjade, his remains hiding in plain sight. But what happened to Hemraj? How did he come to be on the terrace? How was his death linked to Arushi's? Nippur and Rajesh made their journey once again to Hardiwar to spread Arusha's ashes. Rajesh had entered Arushi's time of death as 2am in the priest's records. Both Arushi and Hemraj had received similar wounds before their deaths. Arushi had a blunt force injury on her forehead above her left eye and one on her occipital bone located at the back of the head. The Tawa's lawyers claims that the only blunt force injury that is on Arushi's autopsy report is that to her forehead. The injury to her forehead had caused a cut 4cm by 3cm on her brain and a blood clot the size of 8cm by 2cm. The cut on her neck measured around 14cm by 6 and was found to be dealt after the blow to her face due to the lack of arterial spurts. The blunt force trauma to her head is what ultimately killed her. Professionals stated that she would not have survived longer than two minutes with the injuries that she'd sustained to her brain. Hemraj received similar wounds, only his blunt force trauma was only to the occipital bone and he had identical cuts to his neck. Forensics reveals that Arushi had received the blunt force trauma from a heavy, sharp-edged weapon. Now it's interesting to note that Rajesh Talwar owned a golf club, of which the dimensions matched exactly with the blunt force wounds to both Arushi and Hemraj. The weapon that was used to slit the throats of the victims has never been found nor identified. Authorities believe the weapon to be a kukri, a traditional Nepali machete. However, before they came to this conclusion, they actually initially thought the cuts had been made by a surgical knife. You see, the cuts in the throats had been made with careful precision in order to cut both the windpipe and the left carotid artery, which supplies the oxygen to the brain. However, the surgical knife theory was quickly thrown out of the window as the cuts it would have made would only have been a centimetre wide maximum. So although the cuts themselves seem to have been made by someone with surgical knowledge, the tool used could not have been from a surgical profession. Arushi's body had been covered by a flannel blanket and her face covered by her school bag. A large majority of her surroundings were covered in her blood, apart from a pink pillow kept at the end of her bed and her school bag. These were all in range of her blood splatter, but spotless when she was found, meaning that the killer had placed them there after her death. In an autopsy report, a doctor reported that Arushi's genital area to have been completely normal, showing no signs of a sexual assault. There was, however, a whitish discharge at her vagina, which was sent to a lab to determine the presence of semen. The lab results came back negative for the presence of semen. However, retesting the sample in 2009 showed that the sample had actually been contaminated. The authorities came to the conclusion that although it had been contaminated, it hadn't been done deliberately. The bedsheet underneath Arushi had a circular wet patch underneath her pelvic area, although her pyjamas were dry and showed no signs of her defecating on herself. Her pyjama bottoms, which had been untied, looked as if they'd been pulled up and down, as from the front they seemed to be on properly, but upon further investigation, her rear end was exposed. Hemraj's body had been dragged 20 feet up to the terrace by the killer. They left a blood trail and caused several abrasions on his elbows. 
His body was left next to the external part of an air conditioner and had been covered by a panel from the cooler on the roof. Forensic professionals determined that the drag marks left from the route the killer took with Hemraj's body were made by a body being dragged in a bedsheet. Authorities also decided that Hemraj had been killed elsewhere and his body dragged up to the terrace to be hidden. Investigators found a palm print in blood on the wall of the terrace, which had been confirmed to be the blood of Hemraj but unfortunately they were unable to get a match on the prints. They also found a blood-stained shoe print on the terrace, approximately a size 8 or 9. The Tawa's lawyer claimed that those who first found Hemorrhage's body saw hair in his mouth that could possibly have been from his attacker, though the police never followed up with this claim. Unlike Arushi, Hemorrhage had nothing in his stomach other than 25 milliliters of liquid. This lined up with the fact that the dinner from the night before that had been left untouched on the kitchen counter had been his and that he hadn't eaten it. Hermadre's bedroom had been searched and investigated by Guatem. He'd seen three glasses, two containing alcohol and a third which was empty. They'd also seen a bottle of Kingfisher beer, Sprite and a bottle of Sula whiskey. This was out of the ordinary for Hemraj, as many of his friends described him as a teetotaler, teetotalism being a practice which abstains from the drinking of alcoholic drinks. On the 21st of May, the authorities began to suspect the parents for the murders of Arushi and Hemraj. Both parents claimed that they didn't hear any noise throughout the night of the murders, even though Arushi's bedroom was a maximum of eight feet from the parents. Now, the Tawas claimed that the idea of Hemraj and Arushi having an inappropriate relationship had been planted by a former assistant at the family's dental clinic, who was called Krishna Thadarai. And so, on the 7th of June 2008, Thadarai was detained for the murders of Arushi and Hemraj. In his house, they had found a blood-stained cookery, trousers, and a pillowcase. He'd been made to take a polygraph test twice, a psychological assessment, and a narco-analysis test. During his narco-analysis test, Thadarai mentioned a second murderer. He mentioned another domestic servant called Raj Kumar, who works for the Durrani family. The CBI began investigating Raj Kumar as an accomplice and also subjected him to polygraph tests, a psychoanalysis, brain mapping, and narcoanalysis. The CBI then searched Raj Kumar's house and found washed clothing with faint bloodstains on them. But the Duranis said the bloodstains could be from the boils on his body that Raj Kumar was prone to. On the 27th of June, Rajkumar was arrested on the suspicion of the murders. And on the 30th of June 2008, Vijay Mandal, another acquaintance of Thadaray, was called into question as a suspect. Mandal was a chauffeur and domestic help for the Tawa's neighbour, Panish Tandon. Hemraj, Thadaray and Rajkumar were all of Nepali descent and had been hired by a former domestic employee of the Tawa's. On the 9th of July, Rajkumar was made to take yet another narco-analysis, and a day later, the media had begun reporting that he had confessed to both murders. Vijay Mandal, who was being investigated alongside the other two men, was arrested on the 11th of July. The Tawas reported that all three men had been with Hemraj the night of the murders, watching a Nepali television programme in his bedroom, and this was supported by the three glasses in Hemraj's bedroom and impressions on the bed, which detectives claimed had been left by multiple people. All three men had different reports of the nights when doing their narco-analysis. Their stories not only differed between one another, but between each separate narco-analysis. When the case went to court, the persons held on trial were none other than Rajesh and Nepal Tawa. 
The tower's defence placed the blame on the police, stating that they were only blaming the parents to make up for a, quote, botched police investigation. Rajesh and Nepal claims that they couldn't have heard anything from Arushi's room less than 10 feet away from them because of two air conditioners, one air conditioner placed in the parents' room at the window and Arushi having a split air conditioner. They also claim that at the time, Arushi had a throat infection, meaning that if she had screamed, it wouldn't have been very loud. A defence witness and doctor by the name of Dr. R.K. Sharma told the courts that Arushi would not have been able to scream, as the first blow would have knocked her unconscious almost immediately. The authorities' theory that Hemraj had been found attempting to romance Arushi in a drunk stupor and killed by Rajesh was quickly debunked. Later evidence reveals that Hemraj was not killed inside the house and had rather been killed on the terrace, the sheer amount of blood around his body could not have been there if he had been killed in a different location. This did not deter the police from suspecting Rajesh as their prime suspect and Nupur as an accomplice. It's thought that Hemraj had some knowledge of an adulterous affair Rajesh may have been having, although there is no proof to back this theory up. Authorities believe that Hemraj had confronted Rajesh on the terrace about his affair, resulting in Rajesh killing him. The police had arrested Rajesh on May 23rd based on these theories, plus the idea that Arushi was involved romantically with Hemraj. They believed that he'd found Hemraj in a, quote, compromising position with Arushi through the night and had taken him up to the terrace to speak. They then speculated that Rajesh had drunk the whiskey that had been left on the living room table before killing his own daughter. On May 30th, the media was bombarded by year-old emails from Arushi's personal computer, the media painted Arushi to be a promiscuous teenager as her interactions with three of her male friends spread across news article after news article. Arushi's friends spoke out against this picture that, that the media had been painting of her and defended her name and dignity even in her death. The CBI ruled out any outsider suspects due to a lack of forced entry into the house. However, all of the evidence they had to point towards the parents was circumstantial at best. Only Arushi's parents have the ability to, quote, clean up the crime scene, placing bedsheets in a uniform manner and moving her body to look in a neater position. The blunt force trauma wounds were an exact match for a golf club owned by Rajesh, and the slits to the throat could only have been done by someone with surgical knowledge. There was no blood stains or DNA on the golf club to tie it to either murder, nor was there any of Hemorrhage's blood on the Tawa's clothing. Unfortunately, this wasn't enough to sway the jury, and both Rajesh and Nepal Tawar walked free, and the CBI called for the case to be closed due to insufficient evidence to indict anybody involved. Kumkala, the wife of Hemraj, had been pushing the authorities to look for who killed her husband. Kumkala lived back in Nepal with her son and Hemraj's mother, living on the money that Hemraj would send them from his salary each month. And since the death of her husband, she'd been insistent that the Tawars murdered Hemraj. She defended him when there was claims that he was involved with a 13-year-old, claiming that Arushi called him uncle. She stated that she had confidence in the Indian judiciary system, but lost all hope when she realised that the Tawas were the culprits. She said in an interview conducted by India Today, quote, We are an extremely poor family. We did not know the Tawas are the culprits. We are shattered. It would have been virtually impossible for a family as poor of Kamkala's to have a legal battle with a family as well off as the Tawas. They had little knowledge about the law, nor would they know where to gather the money or knowledge to start a case against the Tawas. She claimed that the Tawas had already owed six months worth of salary to Hemraj prior to his death and had no sympathy towards the family when his body had been found. 
She told the media that Hemraj had been threatened several times by the Talwas and that Rajesh was extremely short-tempered, claiming that sometimes Rajesh would chase and beat Hemraj over trivial and unimportant things. Fifteen days before his murder, Hemraj had called his wife to tell her that the Tawas suspected him of leaking family secrets to outsiders, telling her that even Rajesh's brother, Dinesh, had taken one look at him and had been suspicious of him. He told her that they had threatened his life if they were to find out he was leaking family secrets, to which he had assured them that he hadn't been. Kunkala has desperately tried to get her story heard by the media. The only way she could describe it was that nobody cared about the poor man that died because he was poor. Kunkala never got to see her husband's body and has never had closure for his murder, which she says has left an emotional void. Although the prosecution tried their best to paint Hemraj in a way that would make him seem nothing short of devious, Kumkala never once believed the rumours that her husband had tried to bed Arushi. Arushi respected Hemraj and his family, and had once sent a gift to his son Prajwal back in Nepal. Kumkala stated in an interview with OpenTheMagazine.com that if she ever saw the Tawas, she would quote, pour kerosene oil on them and burn them alive. She says that they have destroyed her life and that God will never let them rest in peace. In January of 2011, the CBI moved to close the murder cases of Arushi Tawa and Hemraj Banjade. Rajesh Tawa, outraged by this, started a petition to prevent them from closing the case. This petition was rejected by the magistrates. However, in February 2011, the closure sheet drawn up by the CBI was converted into a charge sheet against Rajesh and Nepal. Once again, Rajesh and Nepal Tawa drew up petitions to rebuke their summoning by the courts and sent them to the Allahabad High Court and the Supreme Court. Both courts denied their pleas, and their trial began on the 11th of May 2011. The Tawas had three solicitors, all of which had worked for them pro bono. The trial was long, and the Tawas based their defence on putting the blame on the three men who had been suspects for a brief period of time. The Tawa's solicitors were given access to the crime scene investigation information, witness statements and photographs that the prosecution were relying on for their case. They were not allowed to see the narco-analysis reports of Thadare, Rajkumar and Mandal, as these reports were not even available to the public. On the 25th of November in 2013, the court found Rajesh and Nepal Tawa guilty of the murders of Arushi, their daughter and Hemraj. The couple were charged as guilty for double homicide and destruction of evidence, as shortly after the deaths, the Tawa couple began renovating their apartments. On the 26th of November, the couple were sentenced to life imprisonment for the two murders. In January of 2014, the Tawas fought their verdict in the Allahabad High Court. They called that the verdict that had been given was a miscarriage of justice and that the defence solicitors had not brought forward points that proved their innocence in court only defence against their guilt. On the 12th of October 2017, the murder cases of Arushi Tawa and Hemraj Banjade were opened once again, and Rajesh and Nupur Tawa were acquitted. The court stated that the evidence brought against the couple was not enough to be able to say without reasonable doubt that the two had committed the murders. To this day, the cases of Hemraj and Arushi remain open, as the media continuously slates the police for botching the original investigation. The case has inspired several creative projects, such as the 2015 films Rahashia and Talva. A book titled Arushi was also released in 2015, siding with the parents and claiming they are victims of, quote, miscarriage of justice. And that's everything that we have for you in today's case. 
A special thank you to Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. Get your one month free trial using the links below. And an even more special thank you to my following Patreon members for their support. Lady Janice Mimi Fisher, Kirsty, Jade G, Patricia Luna, David X, Casey Monks, Samantha O'Hara, and Cicely Thomas. And also the following channel members, Nino Lover, Casey for the Other Side, Bailey's Clubhouse, and MG. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next episode.